welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Your host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Well, welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute and also hosted on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. I'm Ryan Aris, and I am joined, as always, by Dr. Joe Boot. On today's show, we're going to pick up where we left off with our series in the Ten Commandments. Today, we're going to be spending some time with the Second Commandment, uh, the commandment which prohibits idolatry and graven images, and we'll get into the implications and applications of how that, to how that commandment is to be realized in its original context as well as in a, in a modern-day context. Before we dive into that, a couple of quick announcements. Uh, first is about our upcoming training programs. We have two of these coming up in May of this year in the United States. The first is the Runner Academy, May 7th through 17th in Chatsworth, Georgia. And that's a, a 10-day residential training program for uh, post-secondary students and young professionals. And what we seek to do at the Runner Academy is to understand the ideas and the movements that have uh, that have acted to bring us to where we are today as a society, and to to understand how, uh, standing firmly on God's word, that we can begin to uh, to build a response to that. The other program is the Christianity and Culture Colloquium, and that's happening in Deerwood, Minnesota. And this is a three uh, three and a half day program for a general adult audience, and we will be dealing with many of the same themes that will that will be addressed at the Runner Academy. It's a, it's just an abbreviated program, and we're looking forward to having uh, Joe, uh, Dr. Andrew Sandlin, Dr. Ted Fenske, Dr. Peter Jones, and many other of our friends and fellows. Uh, joining us uh, to to be to act as lecturers on uh, on that on those programs, so we hope that uh, that you can join us for one or both of those. Please go to ezrainstitute.com and find out more about both of those programs. The uh, the colloquium, Ryan, is kind of like a a sort of scratch and sniff book, and uh, the uh, the 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 Runner Academy, the H Heaven Runner International Academy, is sort of our our textbook version of the uh, of the material, right? It's uh, it's got nothing to do with long distance running, um, but uh, but running in the sense of following Christ, right? What what does it really mean to uh, to follow Christ uh, totally, all the way, not just part way? Yeah, that's a good point, and. They, uh, it would, I would be remiss if I let, uh, let, any, let anyone go with the assumption or the understanding that the Runner Academy was about primarily uh, running or a, a sports training camp. Uh, the, uh, the name comes from the, the American philosopher of the 20th century, uh, Howard Evan Runner, and the full name is the H. Evan Runner International Academy for Cultural Leadership. And... Evan Runner, as a as a man, as a thinker, uh, was uh, was profoundly influential on uh, on you, Joe. I know, and uh, as and on the uh, the the thought and the direction that uh, that the institute has taken more broadly. So we thought it would be it was an appropriate namesake for for this program. The other announcement is that as we're releasing this 
in the month of February. We've just ticked over into a new month, and that means it's time for a new book of the month. And February's book of the month is Joe's uh, apologetics classic, Why I Still Believe. I hope it's not too presumptuous to call it a classic. It, it, we are releasing the, uh, the 20th anniversary edition of that book. So it's, it's been around a while. It's had some staying power, gone through a few publishers, and we've recently acquired the rights to, to publish that again uh, under our own name. It's actually one of my favorite books, Ryan, because it's kind of personal to me too, because the way we introduce people to uh, a defense of the faith in, in, in that book is almost through a partial narrative, a par- partial story, partial testimony um, wrapped together with, a, with a, uh, 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 what it means to defend the, the, the Christian philosophy of life and how we come to truly discover that for ourselves. So it has a sort of testimonial element that I think makes it one of our most readable resources as well. Yeah, that's a good point, Joe. And it is worth uh, just saying out loud that apologetics does not happen in a vacuum. Apologetics is not primarily about how sophisticated an argument you can marshal. Uh, it, it's it's a personal matter. It's about what uh, it's ultimately about what we love. Well, without further ado, let's get into the content of our discussion today. As I said already, that is the second commandment, and we're going to read it here from Exodus chapter twenty. Verses 4 through 6. We read, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, Joe, right off the bat, as we read through the Ten Commandments as a list, uh, you'll notice that this second one is is much longer and more detailed uh, than the first or than many of the others, and it it includes uh, it includes both a threat and a promise, uh, you know, a threat of a curse and the promise of of ongoing faithfulness. And the other thing that you'll notice right away is that this commandment there is a there's a waiting. Uh, heavily towards the uh, the promise uh, as opposed to the curse. So, what do we make of this? Well, the the amount of um, qualification or de- description um, of uh, idolatry here is is clearly important. The second commandment is. Whereas we could look at the first commandment and, and, and see within it a general, a generalized prohibition against idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment be- begins to focus our attention specifically on this whole area of worship and uh, what it means to worship God as he requires. And so that does require a certain degree of qualification, especially in the, um, of course, in every context, but in the in the particular context into which these commandments, the, the Ten Commandments are being given to the Jews in this covenantal treaty that we've talked about. The surrounding nations were worshipping carved images. Uh, they were worshipping 
gods of, of gold and silver. They're worshipping uh, essentially fashioning forms uh, of their own imagination and then um, making them and then worshipping them. And so there are there are specifics. There's a there's a qualification here as God begins to talk to the people about what right worship really looks like. So th- this command fundamentally um, is a prohibition about worshiping uh, false gods, but also uh, any god, including actually the living god, by means of an idol, uh, and uh, that's why there's an emphasis shift now into the the, the nature of, of worship because this could even be the worship of the of the living god but in the wrong way uh in a way that is not sanctioned uh, by the lord and uh the the significance of it um which we can come to in in just a moment um is is weighty because it will affect the the shape not just of the individual life, but the, the threats there that you've alluded to, the blessings and cursings to children and our children's children. It's a multi-generational issue that has very real world, familial, social, societal consequences. This is um, this is not about merely the, 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 the private convictions that might go on between your ears, although, of course, Idols of our own imagination, uh, creations, uh, divinity concepts that are, are, are fashioned in a more sophisticated philosophical way, not necessarily a carved image, but um, a sophisticated notion of, of idolatry. Uh, these are all um, being covered off in this command. And that those that kind of disobedience is not just for the immediacy of the individual, and what may happen in our own personal lives, but how we approach God is going to have an impact upon the generations that follow. And because God is a gracious and a merciful and a good God, uh, he brings blessing upon a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Um, But his curse is upon the the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. So there is a notice there, though, it's important to note, especially that there is the continuity of the judgment concerns the abiding reality of hatred of God. And you can think about that in terms of, you know, if you grow up in a family where God is despised, where the living God isn't worshipped, where his word is not honoured, where the reality of Christ's work is uh, an object of ridicule, perhaps, there is going to be consequences for the children. Now, the children can absolutely turn to the Lord and repent and be subject to the blessing of God. Uh, But a general pattern that we would see uh, is that the idolatry and uh, disobedience and faithlessness has these multi-generational implications uh, that, uh, that are very real in the family and very real in society. But God remains faithful to all the generations that love him and, and keep his commands. So there's there's a lot to this commandment, and therefore it's uh, the, the qualifications are there 
to uh, the extension of it is there so that we understand what right worship really means. Now, in our own age, uh, it's uh, we're used to talking, especially in evangelical circles, about idolatry of the heart. But one of the things that that strikes me as I was reading this passage is just how how very physical it is. Uh, it talks about making an idol. Uh, the KJV s- says a graven image. It's it's something that is made, something that is that is made with physical materials, made by hands. So, in a context that is that is very physical, that is very present and sort of right before our eyes. Uh, what does it mean to worship and to serve? Mm-hmm. Well, it is it is important to to qualify here that the Bible doesn't have an Islamic view of images. The when it when it talks about when when Scripture um, talks to us about making idols. And of course, idolatry starts in the heart, so it's not entirely inappropriate. We, we often talk, don't we, about in reformational thinking about the heart as the religious root of life. And it's from the heart that spring um, all these sins, murders, adulteries, etc., etc., and idolatry. So it is a matter of the heart. But what human beings think in their heart, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. He, what human beings um, are... We're made in such a way that we cannot help but manifest, uh, embody and express what is in our hearts and and what's in our minds, you know. Uh, And so idolatry doesn't remain a private affair. It doesn't remain something that is purely internal or inward. It always finds its way out in our words, in our deeds. And... um, the the uh, image making that goes on, which can sound, you know, to modern Western ears, can sound a little bit primitive, can't it? Because we think we are sort of beyond that, or we've moved beyond it. Actually, it's increasingly the case that we see people uh, adopting all kinds of images again. Uh, you know, how often do you now see statues of Buddha, for example, uh, in public places? Uh, in people's homes, in people's gardens. Uh, it's very, very common. So we are actually seeing a, a revival of heathen, uh, pagan ideas about God expressed in images that people do, um, will often use as as a, as a form of symbolism within their home and arguably a form of therefore of worship. But the, so we mustn't be fooled by uh, the the image as though uh, it, it's uh, some sort of stupid individual, some sort of primitive, unevolved. Uh, another myth. There, there's an idol of of the Western of of the Western world. Evolution as an idea. But the notion that, that there are so sort of these un, unevolved, unscientific people who who made images of gods. Paul, of course, encounters all of these idols, you'll remember in Acts 17, um, of the Greco-Roman world, a highly sophisticated culture. And and yet in the uh, Areopagus there, and he's going around the temples, he's 
Paul is seeing a city filled with idols, and these are physical representations of um, gods, basically. And so when, for example, a Hindu god or goddess is depicted as having many arms or many hands, there's an idea there that's being expressed about the divine uh, image. Um, in this case, that uh, uh, God is perhaps all, all knowing, all seeing, everywhere, uh, permeating everything. And so that there is, there is a, a, a very often it's what the idol represents that is uh, critically significant. Um, and uh, that remains that remains true uh, today, not just in the, um, the 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 former idol making of the past, but God actually ridicules this in the in the appropriate way. God Himself. This is this is where divine humor um, is repeatedly seen. Uh, take for example in uh, the book of Isaiah, where. Uh, in Isaiah 44, 12 through 20, where God ridicules the man who um, uses half of his wood to build a fire and he just burns it. And then the other half to make an idol to worship. Uh, so in one sense, you know, you can see how in idolatry also their man is worshiping something that he has made. <clears throat> and he, so he's worshiping not only something less than God, He's worshipping something less than himself. And I want to come back to that thought in a moment uh, as we consider the, some of the, the, the consequences of this. But in short, what I'm saying is that the image making we shouldn't see in some sort of naive, uh, primitive way. This is in a certain sense about man worshipping his ideas, his ideals, his ideas about God, forming an image of them, of his own making. Uh, and falling into both the absurdity of burning half of his uh, half of the wood and fashioning the other half into something else that he's about to worship, that he invests with a certain kind of significance. Uh, and so, the uh, the the image making that God forbids here, uh, because God has a, jealously guards his own image making project, which I want to talk about in a moment. Uh, but the image making here is not a ban on, therefore, all forms of art. And I think, uh, and, and even actually, we might say art in worship. Um, we don't here see God prohibiting uh, paintings of Jesus, even. Um, never mind, uh, you know, depictions of angels or uh, of... Um, uh, symbolism in mosaics or stained glass windows uh, or or whatever else um, that are artistic uh, expressions of man's creativity. What the the commandment is getting at, and it's very clear both by the context and by the words that are being used, is an image. That, that is used for the purpose of bowing down and serving. A, an image that is created that's then vested with a kind of significance, with a, with a, uh, a set of attributes or ideals that, 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 we, then, that we then worship. So the, the problem is not sculpture of human beings or 
of birds and reptiles or paintings or in modern uh, media as well, uh, digital media, film, and so on, uh, as though, you know, you're you're in the grip of idolatry if you watch the Jesus movie or, uh, you know, watching The Chosen. Um, that's not what God has in mind, unless somehow the image that is portrayed in The Chosen becomes your object of worship uh, rather than the living God or the or the painting that an artist has done of uh, an angel or or, 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 or or an artistic impression of the Lord Jesus, if that becomes uh, an image to be worshipped and served, uh, then we have um, a real problem. And so, and, and, and let me just say that, you know, that's not just, uh, you know, off the top of my head. We can, we can prove this from the Bible because uh, God actually commands Moses to make two cherubim of gold in Exodus 25, uh, verses 18 through 20, and to uh, put them on the ends of the mercy seat in the holiest part of the tabernacle. And the cherubim are also supposed to decorate the curtains of the tabernacle. And then you've got the lampstand with the um, cups that are to be like blossoms. So it's sort of like a tree, essentially. And the temple was to include images of cherub cherubim in the sanctuary and palm trees and flowers and so on. So this is not a prohibition against all images. You remember, perhaps most famously, God commands Moses uh, to make um, uh, an image of a serpent and to put it on a pole so that everyone who's bitten is to, is to look at it and live. So it would seem uh, preposterous to suggest that God is going to command, on the one hand, the making of beautiful art and, and, and images um, for his glory, because we're told in Scripture they were for beauty and for glory, um, and then tell us in the commandment that, that all image making is intrinsically sinful. So uh, the um, it, it, this is not to do with the first thing we can say here. It's not to do with the, the idea that artistic works, artistic impressions, and even um, the use of art in places of worship is somehow intrinsically sinful. It's to do with the intention, the intentionality worship and to bow down and to serve these images that are actually there to create a, an idolatrous version of God, a distorted, twisted image of God, and thereby actually, and this is the social and societal implication, a distorted and twisted image of man, of human beings. Right. And as you're talking there, Joe, I'm just thinking that... Uh whether it's right worship or wrong worship, uh, whether it's idolatrous or true worship, all worship involves ritual. All worship involves a physical touch point. Uh, in, right. in a Christian worship service, a Protestant worship service, we can think most, we can point most obviously to uh, the ordinances of communion and of baptism. So it's worth observing, worth mentioning that it's not, uh, it's not the presence of physical things that makes something true or false worship, uh, it's, it's another theme that, that we get onto quite often here, and that's the matter of structure versus direction. Yeah, and there's a, there's a risk, isn't there? There's a danger uh, always of an excessive overreaction based on a, on a misunderstanding 
um, to an abuse, as you say, of the uh, of the structure in terms of an inappropriate direction. And we see this to a degree uh, with uh, certain parts of the Reformation, where there was a there was a reaction to um, idolatry in the church, where images perhaps of Mary or of saints were being venerated. Um, they they were being bowed down to. That there, there was a notion that that actually one could offer prayers uh, to. Mary to saints that would somehow be vicarious, that there were merits there available to us uh, through um, these human beings, and um, their images then were were venerated. And so in the in the right biblical reaction to that to say this is wrong, you also had an excess which said, right, we need to strip the churches of art, of beauty. Um, of um, any uh, image, irrespective of whether it's it's being bowed down to and served, uh, and so I think in, for example, in in Zwingli's case, you know, we're basically whitewashed walls in the churches, and uh, even though many people were were illiterate, and so actually the stained glass helped people grasp the story of Scripture, for example. Um, these things were 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 frequently stripped away, and and and, and I think. In Zwingli's case, uh, I believe he was a quite quite the violinist, and so and and musical instrumentation in some instances was also taken out as perhaps conjuring up uh, in our minds emotions and images uh, that were um, not appropriate uh, for worship. So there there is a, there, the structure and direction distinction that you've mentioned. I think is is critically important. Um, uh, an artist may paint a beautiful picture of a bird. Now, if that bird um, is appreciated and and and, and enjoyed uh, because it brings glory to the Creator who made all these wonderful physical, biotic th- uh, creatures and things uh, for our enjoyment, um, if glory goes to God because of that, and we have a, a profound sense of appreciation for God's creation, that's wonderful. Structure, direction. If that image of that bird or that cat, as in the case of the Egyptians, for example, um, they who worshipped cats, among other creatures, becomes an object of adoration and worship, distorting our image of God, then we have idolatry. So that touches on a listener question that I wanted to uh, incorporate into this conversation today. Thanks again for sending in your questions. Uh, we do get to all of them, and where we can, we'll get them out here on the air so that we can address them. But today's question... Uh, comes in. The question is, how do we identify the more subtle idols in our lives today? And she's got a couple of examples here uh, where there is a, uh, you know, a physician who works at a hospital. He's got a, uh, an irregular and demanding work schedule uh, and has been told by, by others that you're, you're making an idol out of your work because you're not, you're not able to attend you know, every single Sunday service or the uh, the midweek Bible study or the men's prayer breakfast or things like that. And the other, the other example cited of a stay-at-home mom, a homeschooling mom of several children, uh, who's been told that, uh, that she is making an idol out of the role of mother and of wife. 
And you can kind of hear, you can hear the earnestness of the question. Uh, If there's anything in our life as Christians where we are participating in idolatry, obviously we we want to root that out. We, We don't want to participate in that. But we also want to take our vocation and calling seriously. We want to work uh, with our whole hearts, uh, with all of our strength as to the Lord. And, and we don't want to be, we don't like to be accused of idolatry by, or for just for going about the things that, uh, that God has called us to do. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, I think this is where um, the uh, first commandment is, is as relevant uh, having no other gods before the Lord. And, you know, in all forms of idolatry, something is being put in the place of God. Uh, but, but the concern of the second commandment particularly is that the the uh, the image, the idea, that which is graven, that which is, you know, formed, is a deception um, so that it distorts who God really is in his relationship to us and then distorts uh, who we are um, as his image bearers. Uh, so distorts God, distorts his the, 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 what his image bearer is meant to reflect back um, to creation. Uh, and it concerns what is the appropriate way in which we're going to approach God then as he is. Now, there is a danger that what we can call regional holiness uh, comes in here. And sometimes when we start to go beyond God's law, in fact, always when we go beyond God's law and we start to make human commandments, we start to make our own kind of fence for the law of God, uh, we become Pharisees. And uh, the, I would say that the the perhaps one of the uh, the things that this, this questioner has, has faced is um, th- those who, in perhaps genuine zeal for the life of the church, the ecclesiastical structure, uh, an and aspect of our lives as Christians, um, has become uh, exaggerated in its uh, role. We mustn't churchify the commandments um, and be guilty of an ecclesiasticization of the faith. So if somebody is a believer and is seeking to obey God faithfully in the family um, by teaching their children the faith and and raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord and seeking to do that diligently um, rather than sending their children off to be educated by pagans, um, uh, you can't be guilty of idolatry for obeying God's word. Of course, it's possible for any of us with almost anything to allow something to get so out of place in our lives that um, and of course, Jesus deals with this. If you if you, you know, love father, mother, family member more than me, you're not worthy of me. So anything that if it gets to the point where actually the 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 child is more important than God himself or. The, the, the form of schooling is more important than the worship and service of God himself. We can, of course, we can be in the grip of idolatry. But if we are diligently seeking to obey the Lord by obeying his word, we can we can be confident that we're not going to stumble into uh, idolatry. Uh, a father who is trying to provide for his children by being diligent with his work 
uh, does not uh, need to um, be too concerned uh, without certainly the Holy Spirit will make clear to a person's conscience if their diligence in providing for their family has tipped over into a kind of idolatry of work where work itself now takes the place of God himself because we refuse to take Sabbath rest. Um, we, that is that, that there is a day in which we are uh, not engaged in the usual ordinary labors and service and we'll come to uh, the Sabbath. So there would be key indicators of a person who is in the grip of an idolatry within their vocation because everything, God, the family, marriage, children, everything will be taking second place to a subservience and almost a servitude to vocation, which is actually ultimately about serving self because we're saying that where the meaning of reality and of life, uh, the ultimate meaning of human existence is actually my vocation uh, and not the living God and where he where that finds its proper vocation finds its place. But if we're seeking to provide for the family, uh, serve God's kingdom purposes, give to the to the work of the kingdom of God, then we can walk in confidence and, and boldness that, you know, if I can't make uh, the Wednesday night Bible study or, you know, the men's meeting, whatever, because I've got family commitments or work commitments, that is not idolatry. And uh, there's a greater danger there that the, ch the church institutional life actually can become idolatrous. Um, with what, what God requires of us there. No, we don't. You're right. But there can be a, a churchification of the Christian life that makes ecclesiastical involvement in every single thing that's going on um, uh, more important than the living God himself. And, and a kind of uh, nominal practice or just merely uh, habit is important, of course. But if it just becomes merely habit and actually that our, our own families and our own working life is 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 and our own out evangelism and our, and our glor glorifying God in our vocation is suffering because we think that we're morally obligated to be at every single program the local church puts on, we can be equally in the grip of a misunderstanding of true worship. So. I do think that that is an important question, and I think anxiety is not where we should be with this. The, the commands of God are there for this is the way, walk in it. This is the way of blessing. Uh, for the Christian, this is the this is the, the the root of our sanctification, to walk in joyful obedience to the commands to express our love for God. And uh, as we seek to be obedient in everything, um, we needn't fear that we're going to fall afoul of the of the uh, of the second commandment, um, just because somebody thinks that uh, a homeschool mum is is uh, too faithful to raising her children in in the in in the instruction of the Lord. I think we have to be careful of not slipping into Pharisaism there and judging one another by standards that are external to the law of God. Now, Joe, you've mentioned uh, churchification and idolatry in the ecclesiastical sphere, and I want to pivot to focus on that sphere specifically uh, in light of a recent news article. And so this, this is happening in the UK, uh, St. Nicholas Church, a, a church, uh, an Anglican church in Leicester, uh, one of the oldest churches in England, 
uh, has recently begun uh, prominently displaying a large pride flag on their altar. And this this church, uh, uh, such a, such a prominent church itself uh, in the the heritage of the nation, and the placement so prominently within that church of this uh, very overt symbol, uh, has been drawing criticism and backlash. So, Joe, can you comment on how we should think about idolatry within the church by walking us through this situation? Yeah, well, this is, uh, as you say, a historic church um, in the United Kingdom. It's actually St. Nicholas Church in Leicester. Um, and uh, they've essentially uh, switched from a sort of temporary small flag, uh, pride flag, to a permanent uh, pride flag that is uh, that is basically placed over the altar at the uh, at the front of the church in a very prominent position um and they claim that the the flag is a way of letting visitors know they are welcome and safe um well i've got news for you jesus christ is not safe uh c.s lewis uh puts it in the line the witch in the wardrobe he, he may be good but he isn't safe um and uh the last thing you can uh do with with God is treat him with uh, presumption, and in this case with contempt. Now, I think this is. Um, I'm glad you've highlighted this article because I think it's it's particularly relevant to the second commandment, which, as we said at the beginning, is focused on right worship. Because one of the reasons this commandment goes into the detail that it does uh, is that. Idolatry need not be simply the making of false gods, uh, but the but actually worshiping uh, the or claiming to worship the true God, but by a a false image by means of an idol, and this is why it's peculiarly relevant to those who claim to be Israel. You know, those who claim to be the people of God, those who claim to be the church. Let's take um, a, a couple of really good biblical examples of this. We remember that when Moses was up on the mountain and was receiving the law, the people started demanding um, that Aaron um, make for them a God uh, for what essentially looked like a, script, a, a, a throwback to the fertility cults of Egypt. And the uh, the demand was that they well actually in the end Aaron makes a a calf, um, a golden calf, and um, he actually declares that the 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 worship of this calf is to be the feast of Yahweh. So uh, Aaron says, "These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land." Of Egypt. This is in Exodus 32. So you have an identification with the name of Yahweh. You even have an, uh, an identification with the, the historic event of salvation, the, the Exodus. But the, but the image um, is an idol. Uh, it's a false idea of who God is. And we see then that the people, as a result, in imaging this idol, end up practicing sexual immorality. 
they it's the scripture says they rose up to play and then it, then with Jeroboam uh, who erected a new place of worship in Bethel and Dan where he also placed calves of gold and Jeroboam echoes Aaron's words uh, there in Exodus when he says behold your gods O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt um, and so in both cases the the idolatry has reference to the true god it has a sort of historical peg it's being hung on uh the 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 name of the living god it's being hung on the traditions or the heritage that was in the case you'll remember in first kings 12 um where uh God made Jeroboam king over the northern tribes of Israel, and then Solomon's son Rehoboam is king. Rehoboam is king over the southern tribes, and um, in order to prevent the northern tribes going to the temple in Jerusalem, ruled by Rehoboam, Jeroboam erects these this uh, false god. <coughs> but it's all in reference to the true God and the living God. Now, this I think is the most offensive thing to God. I think it's more offensive to the Lord than the ignorance of the the pagan idolaters that Paul refers to in Acts 17, that God in the past overlooked this ignorance. Because here in Israel with Aaron and then later with Jeroboam, it wasn't ignorance. It was out and out rebellion. And it deliberately took the name of God and the, the work of God and the salvation of God and makes a mockery of it and says, of an idol, here is your God. Now, how, how does that relate to the news article that you've just referred to, which, of course, has become a common thing in many so-called progressive churches in Canada, as you well know? I think this was, in this particular case, a particularly um, a novel incident in, in the UK, or the first time it's been so prominent in such a prominent uh, historic place of worship. Now, what you have here is, what is the identification that people make when they look at a church in the West? When they, when they look at a, 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 the, the, the vessels of worship in a church uh, in the West, the identification that both the churchgoer and actually the outsider make to the degree that they are not entirely ignorant of the significance of a church building as a place of worship is it's identified with the living God of the Bible. The identification is with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it's identified with the story of salvation, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the very place you're supposed to be pointed to true worship, you have essentially an idol being set up. Now, in, th in this case... Um, when we uh, when we take these, this rainbow flag uh, draped in the church, the particular and, and noteworthy kind of sacrilege and blasphemy and idolatry here is that it's placed over the altar or what in some traditions we would simply call the communion table. Why there? Why must it be draped over... The communion table over the altar well what is the altar in the bible and this is very significant in terms of this commandment because the altar uh as we see throughout the book of exodus throughout god's law is the place of sacrifice 
It's the place of atonement. And it's where the just penalty for violation of God's law is uh, typified, is meted out in the Older Testament, in the foreshadowing of the work of Christ upon an animal, the sacrifice of an animal. Because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin, of lawlessness, of rebellion. Of course, in in Christ, Christ, our Passover lamb, Paul said, is sacrificed for us. Christ is on the altar, the cross. And he sacrifices himself, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He bears the just penalty of the violation of the law upon himself. Now, the symbol in the life of the church in the Old Testament, it was the the stones. They had to be natural stones in Exodus. It couldn't be a carved altar by man. It was natural stones. You can only approach God in his way. It's not man who's going to provide the sacrifice. It's not man who can provide atonement. It's only God. And so the altar was made of ordinary stones. And uh, the, the unblemished animal was placed upon it for sacrifice. In the Newer Testament, in the Renewed Covenant, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who is placed upon the altar. Remember that the, the, the tabernacle with all the, the beauty and the glory we spoke about, all the images of Eden whether they were um, images of cherubim, which reminds us of Eden, or the pomegranates and the Garden of Eden, um, all of that, uh, all of that beauty and, and, and glory that's associated with the altar, uh, with the with the the tabernacle. The tabernacle was really a foreshadowing of what Christ was going to do to bring us into, restore us to fellowship with God, as in Eden, and. Today, in the life of the church, um, and this has been the, the reality for centuries in the church, is that when we come to the Lord's table, the table of the Lord, we're coming to the altar of the Lord. That is, we're coming to the place of remembrance where Christ was sacrificed for us. We're coming to that place of of, of that kind of joins past, present, and future. We remember the Lord's death in the past, now in the present, till he comes in the future. So that past, present, and future are united in that moment as we come to the Lord's table, the blood and the bread, the wine and the bread, the blood and the body of Christ sacrificed for us. We participate in that reality, uh, the living reality, the covenantal reality that Christ was sacrificed for us and has atoned for our lawlessness so that we might be restored to life and obedience. So that we would now by grace and through the power of the spirit walk in obedience to God's righteousness and justice. And we come weekly in many traditions, but regularly in all traditions to that table to that altar of the Lord, where the reality of sin and God's just penalty for sin is set forth, and we receive cleansing and atonement. That is, we receive the true welcome of those who are in a place of repentance. Remember, we fence the table as well in almost every Christian tradition, as the way the Apostle Paul tells us, which is that we can't come in presumptuously, we can't come with unconfessed sin. 
We must put those sins right. We must bring them to the foot of the cross, to the place of sacrifice. Now, I've taken a few moments to dwell on that because that's the significance of this idolatry of draping the rainbow flag of sexual immorality, of apostasy and rebellion on the very place that sets forth the law of God and the atonement of God in Jesus Christ, that sets forth his altar, his covenant, uh, and the seriousness and significance of the manifestation of the true image of God, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, when we think about images and false images, um, God is fully imaged in the Lord Jesus Christ in the incarnation. So we have in the incarnation, uh, the exact representation, scripture says, the exact representation of who God is. Jesus said himself, if you've seen me, you've seen the father, for I'm in the father and the father is in me. So the issue of idolatry there we see is not to do with invisibility. Is there, well, because God, God's invisible, therefore to make an image is idolatry. That's not the point of the commandment because God is frequently represented visibly in theophanies or Christophanies in the Old Testament, in the incarnation in the New Testament. And in Christ, we see the, the full manifestation of God, his righteousness. Christ fully uh, fulfills, completely fulfills everything required by the law. Uh, he is the, the, uh, the spotless Lamb of God. And so the, the, when we distort Christ and his work, uh, we are distorting the very image of God, and then we radically distort the, the, what we are supposed to represent, which is the image of God ourselves, in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are being, Scripture says, conformed to the image of his Son. And that takes us back, of course, to creation, doesn't it? Where we are made in the image of God, in the likeness of God, male and female, remember, and God's order for human identity, God's order for human sexuality, marriage, which is so fundamental and foundational to God's order, to God's law. You shall not commit adultery. We'll come to that in, in another week. And so in this act of draping the rainbow flag, uh, which represents pride of, of sexual immorality over the very altar, the table of the Lord, you have the ultimate act of idolatry and apostasy. Uh, you have righteousness and justice thrown in his face. You have the image of God uh, marred and distorted, and therefore you have a distorted image of the human person um, in the way we think about human life and human identity. So, and, and this is, I mentioned in passing earlier, God jealously guards his image-making project. The reason that God forbids any image-making uh, that we would worship and serve them is that God has already made an image of himself. And that image is the, is the human being made male and female in the image of God. And that's why he forbids idolatry to make any false image. And, and uh, that ideology that we're talking about, represented by that rainbow flag, is a uh, 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 carved of the imagination of man's mind it's an ideology that invests god especially in the place of worship with an entirely different meaning like rehoboam says look behold your god 
who atoned for you, who welcomes you, when in fact it's an, it's an idol. The welcome of the Lord's table is a true welcome in and through repentance and faith from, from lawlessness in the Lord Jesus Christ. So an idol is made and then those and then people are invited to come and worship that idol. And in the failure to image God as we should image him in obedience and in the likeness of Christ in obedience and faith to God's law word. Uh, we then in making a false God develop a false view of human beings. And of course, the Apostle Paul tells us what the outcome of that is in Romans one. When we make a false image of God, false worship, they exchanged the truth about God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Then you have a so you have a worship exchange, a truth exchange, a worship exchange and a sexual exchange. And that is what Paul describes as the very essence of idolatry in Romans chapter to one. Change the truth about God for the lie by worshipping and serving the creature in this instance the imagination of the of the hearts of men based in their moral rebellion. And then there follows from that a sexual exchange because we've altered our image of God. Therefore, we've made a new God and we start to image the false God. And so that is the critical danger that the 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 the, the vile danger of idolatry and the peculiar danger of idolatry in the church to say, here, behold, Yahweh, behold, Jesus Christ, behold, your way of salvation, uh, but through an idol, and then placing that very idol just as Jeroboam did in the temple of God. I don't think there could be anything more provoking to the jealousy of God and the anger of God than that. Right. So the use of the rainbow flag in particularly is a is a conspicuous case of idolatry but really to to come to the lord's table in any other way than that which the lord has prescribed is also idolatrous that's right and you know of course for those within the reformed community they would probably immediately think of the regulative principle of worship um i think we have to be we have to be very careful to introduce anything um regulative that is not clearly set forth in scripture um, uh, so that uh, we have to be careful not to create for ourselves paper popes, let's say. Um, but there is, we can say in scripture, a form of regulative principle. Uh, and that is that God is approached on his terms. And we come to the Lord Jesus Christ on his terms. Um, and we cannot come to him in any other way than he has said. Jesus makes it crystal clear. No one comes to the Father except by me. And you cannot circumvent the meaning of the covenant of law and blood. Uh, we cannot circumvent the altar, the, 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 the sacrifice of Christ to pay the penalty for our sin and lawlessness and think we can invent uh, a welcoming God of our imagination who smiles at sin and rebellion and idolatry and apostasy and say that we will worship that image instead and call him Yahweh, call him Jesus and say this is the, the way of salvation. As you said, that is the most conspicuous illustration of idolatry right now in our culture. But there are, of course, many ways in which we, we are in danger um, as Christians of doing that um, when we... Um, fail to to image God 
as he reveals himself in the word of God. And, and we can inadvertently do it with, with abstract philosophical and abstract theological concepts where we start talking about what uh, the God must be like, even though God is silent about those speculations. Uh, uh, when God, for example, reveals himself as the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and we perhaps in in philosophical or theological speculation turn him into the god of the greeks uh a, a sort of um uh, an abstract impassable uh distant uh deity um that we want to start ascribing certain um attributes or concepts to uh which are not clearly revealed in the bible and i think sometimes theology can go astray uh, when we try and invest the living God of the Bible uh, with um, certain characteristics that really are describing uh, the gods of Plato and Aristotle and other philosophers, uh, not the not the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there are subtle ways in which we can slip into um, sophisticated forms of often unintentional idolatry Rather than saying with David, you know, I have quieted myself like a weaned child. I've not occupied myself with things too wonderful for me. Um, when we try and uh, create concepts like middle knowledge or, or we start trying to say that God uh, doesn't really know the know the future. Um, and we're open theists. We start going beyond actually what the Bible says either way. Uh, and create for ourselves a God that fits within our philosophical system. Well, Joe, thanks so much for taking us through that second commandment. There's so much here that it might be worth uh, revisiting this, this commandment in a subsequent episode, so we'll keep you posted on that. That's all the time that we have for today. I remind you that from him and through him and to him are all things. Thanks for listening to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, and we'll be with you again next week.